Hello, and welcome to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for the second part of our look at Series 9. So, let's dive straight on in then with The Girl Who Died. I know where I got this face and I know what it's for. Okay, what's it for? To remind me. To hold me to the mark. I'm the doctor. And I save people. And if anyone happens to be listening and you've got any kind of a problem with that, to hell with you! And uh, Jacob, do you want to start us off on this one? Uh, yeah. I think this is possibly one of the weaker episodes this series. Well, I think I think both this and the one we lived actually. Like um like there's stuff in it that I like. I think, you know, it continues that the kind of central theme of hybridity because obviously you have like a shielder who the doctor brings back to life with alien technology, so there's the idea that, you know, she's a hybrid in that sense. There's also these brief allusions to you know, breakdowns of gender binaries, very brief. Like, Ashilda talks about the girls all thought I was a boy, the boys all thought I was a girl, etc. Yeah, and so there's all of that. And then I think there's obviously the fact that it it sets up something that will go on for the rest of the season, which is the character of Ashilda slash me, uh, and how what happens with her character is is useful for reflecting on the the doctor's power and his use of power and i think there's some really good stuff around that like I, I particularly like the scene where they bring back you know capaldi being in fires of pompeii you know mm. and he's saying he's sick of losing people and and all of that stuff i think he i think he plays that scene really really well and i think there is some there's some thematic coherence to the episode itself as well in terms of you know what what the next episode in particular will do with issues of gender and then here you have obviously the vikings as central to the episode who are stereotypically portrayed as as masculine you know and i think that very stereotypical almost like cartoonish portrayal i th- i think that's done very self-consciously with the um, you know the alien who drinks testosterone of warriors, <laughs> drinks the testosterone of warriors, which is uh, just and you know looks like um, I'm trying to remember the name of the the god that the doctor presents to be really obvious. Oh, Odin. Odin, that's the one. Yeah. Oh, um, who has ravens? Oh yeah. Oh, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Sorry, that doesn't mean anything, but like I just I just had to. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Actually, I've. Got more stuff to say about Odin, but we'll mm. we'll get to that. Um, I think where I, I I was trying to think earlier how how would I describe watching this episode, and at first I was like, it's a fun episode, and I was like, no, it's not. That doesn't make any sense because obviously we have the ending where Ashilda dies, and then obviously she's brought back to life, and I think I think one of the things that doesn't quite sit right with me for the with this one is. It feels very tonally off because it's an episode that sets up this kind of interrogation of the Doctor's power. And yet, for the most part, I feel like it's played in a very comedic way. Uh, and then towards the end, it kind of it becomes much more serious. But it also has these these moments kind of threaded throughout it that I really like that, that are, are much more, 
you know, they have like a real emotional resonance to them, like the bit where he's kind of translating what the baby's saying and all mm. that sort of thing. And that scene, as I was saying, referring back to Pompeii. And yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure that that worked in terms of what the episode was setting up. Having said that, I think that this episode handles those kind of tonal shifts much better than the next one, uh, which we'll get on to. But yeah, I I, th- I think it's okay. It has moments that I really like. I don't think it's the best by a stretch. But yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Because, like, this was actually... I think this was one of the first episodes in Series 9 that I came back to and rewatched, like, a couple of years later. And at that point, rewatching it, I thought, this might actually be a classic. This is... For me, this is... It, it's like right up there with something like, you know, Father's Day or um, I guess something like, you know, something like Gridlock or The Girl Who Waited, actually, mm-hmm. as an episode which has a kind of command of tone and of emotional intelligence and that kind of thing. And returning to it again, I actually think that even more so now. The only reason I don't think it's a highlight of this series is because this series is so mm-hmm. good. Um, it's a very crowded field. But I think... I mean, I agree with you that like it obviously has those kinds of tonal shifts. And like I think that this is probably the most comedic episode in this series, actually. But I think it... I, I think it has a real deftness to its tone. Um, I think... And a lot of that comes down to, to Capaldi, actually. It's the kind of thing I was talking about in the last part, where he's very good at making those kinds of... at marrying levity and seriousness, which I think he's very good at doing. Like, you know, you get the scenes where he's kind of training the kind of... the villagers to fight in that kind of seven sam- samurai way. And he manages to... Uh, those are kind of largely comedic scenes where he's giving them nicknames because he can't remember their names and, like... They end up, like, setting fire to the village and stuff. But he plays them, while it's genuinely funny, he plays them with a kind of weariness and a kind of an exhaustion that really sells the notion of, like, he knows these people are going to die. He's certain these people are going to die no matter what he does. And while that proves not to be the case, it turns out to be the case more because of um, of a shielder than him. It's actually, I realised, thinking about it today, it's got, it's a weirdly similar setup to the Doctor Falls, in that it's a kind of a small community, that the Doctor kind of, almost on a whim, makes this decision to stay and help defend it against this apparently insurmountable force, and in both cases ends up doing so, but at a great cost, which is interesting in itself, and not least because, um... There's, I, I really don't think the the Doctor Falls and the Twelfth Doctor's End was planned at this point. And mm. um, so it's an interesting kind of almost accidental rhyme, I suppose, from almost exactly halfway through his tenure to the very end of his tenure. Uh, well, not the very end, but the end. For me, what this comes down to is there's something really clever going on in this story. And I think quite directly, quite overtly, There's a lot of kind of, um, not quite inversion, but at least questioning of Doctor Who norms in this series. Like we had it, uh, Beth and you were talking about this quite a bit with um, Under the Lake Before the Flood 
the way it kind of questions the mores of and indeed the ethics of the base under siege story and who is expendable in that kind of story. We'll have it again in a big way in Zygon Invasion and Inversion, uh, which I'll talk about when we get there. Here, what we have is there's this almost unspoken rule that the or unwritten rule that the structure of a Doctor Who story is the Doctor sort of lands and he will he will defeat the aliens, he will save some people at the cost of some other people. And at the end of it, presumably consider the accounting worth it and swan off. Here, and what I think is really great about that scene uh, that you mentioned, Jacob, which I think is like a highlight of Capaldi's whole tenure. Yeah. What I think is great there is it shows for, not maybe not the first time, but maybe more strongly than ever, that those deaths do weigh on him. Like he puts it, I'm sick of losing. I'm sick of losing people, specifically. Like, there's a there's a sense of, like, that on, on some level, the kind of, the, the tragic and heroic death of a shielder is almost like a final straw. And that's why I talk about this weariness and this exhaustion, because they have the sense that he is, he, he is in a literal sense older than we've ever seen him, of course. But... One of the things that I think Capaldi does really well is play that kind of, that sense of regret and that sense of all of these deaths that have piled up on his conscience and finally he just can't take it anymore. Um, which is where we got all the interesting stuff about his rules and how he breaks his rules and that kind of thing. Which is, I mean, it's a, in some ways it's almost like a trial run for Hellbent and in other ways it's setting up Hellbent uh, very directly in the plot sense, of course. I do want to make sure that we mention Maisie Williams, as I'm sure we will many times over the course of, of this series, because like, she's phenomenal. Uh, and while here she kind of gets less to do than she does, certainly in the next episode, one of the things that is so phenomenal is that she manages to sell this character at these completely different points mm. and does it so well. I mean, it's it's very savvy casting in many ways because uh, she has this strange ageless quality about her anyway uh, in terms of how she looks. But also because as an audience we're used to, as an audience who has presumably seen or at least is aware of Game of Thrones, we're used to seeing her as this kind of feisty, tomboyish noble girl at first and then subsequently marginally more sociopathic. As time goes on, uh, which is not a dissimilar arc to me in some ways. But what I think is interesting here is that because we have this notion of her being really cool and almost like unflappable in some ways, I think it plays with that in interesting ways through the character of a shield. First in the scene where she faces down the, the fake Odin and ruins Clara's clever plan to get him to run away. By being like, oh, my dad will fight your dad, basically. Which is then, which is like, it is this seemingly this kind of cool air punching moment. Aside from the fact that Clara is there like glaring daggers at her as she ruins her plan. But then we get this great moment afterwards where she suddenly realizes what she's done. And like breaks down in tears. Which I think is, it's superb. And um, then later on we have the notion that her power comes through her kind of her imagination, her creativity. I mean, Bethan, I know you're interested in the kind of the stories, the meta narrative aspect of this series. 
Nice. Uh, and I think this is where this comes in here. Yes. This notion of the power of her, of her imagination. That that is like the greatest power of all. Which actually is something that turns up in Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, but uh, attached to other characters than hers. I won't touch too much on the Vikings thing, because I know you want to talk about that, Bethan. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Shall I talk about it? Or do you have... I just have one more thing to say, okay, to, okay, which I'll will actually hold. prove a nice segue to that. Cause, oh, thank you. Because basically I want to talk about Odin. <gasps> Firstly, um, I believe they originally intended to cast Brian Blessed as the, like, the Meyer leader. Um, which is wonderful. <laughs> uh, I think he couldn't do it for health concerns, mm. uh, sadly. But um, it is just a wonderful thing to contemplate. Uh, this role, it seems to have been almost written for him. But what I think is, the other thing that I think is interesting is the Doctor laying claim to being Odin. Because this is quite a self-aware thing, because the the notion of the Doctor as Odin is kind of, is something that dates back to the McCoy years. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a notion that's kind of played with, I believe, in the New Adventures. And it's, I mean, it's there, at least implicitly in Curse of Fenric as well. And so there's a there's a kind of, there's a slyness to that. To the fact that it's kind of immediately undercut. Because he, he does the thing of, oh, I'm Odin. And they're like, no, you're not. That's Odin. <laughs> and he's, he sort of has to just improvise wildly to try and yeah, get out of the situation, which I enjoy. There's a, there's, like a, there's a nice undercutting of the kind of the mythic element of the Doctor there, which I enjoy. But um, yeah, Bethan, I think this is your cue. Ah, well, hello, it's me, Odin. Um, uh, no. Um, so I I have quite a lot to say about the way that the Vikings are used in this story, actually. I suppose I should briefly begin by sort of outlining how I feel about the episode, which is I actually do really like this one. I think it's it's one that suffers, I feel, from being in a series that is overall so good. Mm. But I still... I, I It did work for me. I didn't find it... I didn't find the tonal inconsistent. I didn't find it tonally inconsistent necessarily. That being said, I think that there are some sort of weaker things. I think this is probably, although Maisie Williams is consistently excellent, I think this is kind of the least interesting version of uh, a Shilda slash me that we see. But that makes sense because this is kind of like the beginning of mm. this incredible sort of epic journey that she goes on across the series there's a bit of kind of like I'm not like the other girls about some of Ashilda's um, characterization, which is a little bit weird but there I is, think she but kind like... of makes it, I think it kind of works just because of everything else that's going on and yeah, I, to be honest I think it's less egregious than Arya Stark but... I am very very cross with you I am very disappointed <laughs> I have taken human form to walk among you. Who are you, old man? Do you not recognize the sign of Odin? You are not Odin. And that is not Odin's sign. Oh, and you would know that how exactly. Have you met Odin? Do you know what Odin looks like? So the main thing I want to talk about 
Vikings. Okay, so... (laughs) Firstly, I'd like to point out this is an interesting example of an episode where there is, like, very prominent historical inaccuracies, but I don't really care about them. Mm. Like, the horned helmets is just the prime example Mm. because that is absolutely a thing that belongs to our sort of visual shorthand that we have for vikings that is like a a thing i think it's even from film so it's it's from kind of the stories that we tell about vikings and not at all the historical record but i don't mind i think that's partly because it is doing interesting things with our kind of idea culturally about vikings Mm. but also i just think it's very like sort of smart about the way that um we don't really get we don't get a country because like vikings Mm. were in all sorts of places at different times but i think that's a good decision because then we can kind of make it a story about vikings as we generally understand them rather than a specific viking community and i think that where that really works is the fact that there is this kind of cultural idea that persists of vikings as very like sort of hyper masculine with like sort of big burly bearded men going out to pillage and raid maybe with an implication of like sexual violence in there as well and then i think that the counter to that tends to be oh well there were girl warriors as well so it doesn't ever really challenge the idea of the vikings as a kind of warlike people this is my understanding roughly of the show vikings Mm. but I think that what is really done well here is the fact that that kind of what they do have as their fighting force gets like decimated immediately. Not decimated, wiped out. More than one tenth of them is removed. <laughs> In the aid of this guy who like subscribes to this very like hyper masculine thing, having his like Viking testosterone supplement, like he's some sort of like alien Alex Jones listener <laughs> or something, buying his InfoWars Viking juice. Mm. And, and that is another facet, obviously, of, like, Viking mythology is used in this very, like, sort of fascistic imagery as well. Mm. Mm. But then what the kind of revelation is, is that there's this whole community of Vikings who are just the people that keep the settlement running whilst the fighting lads are out. And they clearly subscribe to some idea of their own mythology because there's this bit where they're having the uh, sort of meeting about what they're going to do. And there's a lad who's like we'll fight him, we're Vikings! And then I think that's when, like, the baby starts yeah. crying and the do- and, and they say, like, well, oh, we'll die gloriously in battle. And then the doctor's like, well, do babies die gloriously in battle? And it's, like, kind of underpinning, it's undercutting that mythology that they're even sort of subscribing to themselves to some extent. Mm. And so I this I, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because I think that it ties into a lot of ideas of stories and storytelling that I want to look at across the series so in a way part of this is just to sort of set up things for later but I do think that within the episode there's this there is this kind of tragedy of the fact that like obviously a Shilda dying it's kind of like and she is the storyteller character more than although there are other kinds of stories and stuff and it's this idea that maybe that's not enough Like, we have the stories that give us, like, courage when they're saying they're going to fight back. There's the stories that has led this alien to come and target them in the first place. There's the stories that Ashilda uses as an effort to sort of save them by conjuring this, like, dragon worm. But maybe that's not enough because she still does die. And then the Doctor sort of tries to challenge that. And so I think that this thing of, like, the role of stories and 
the importance we place on them and is that importance justified and in what context is something that I really want to track across the series. Mm. I also really just appreciate, like, there's some really nice touches in this episode. You've both already mentioned the the sort of concluding scenes with Peter Capaldi, which obviously I agree is, like, really, really great performance, but I also appreciate how this story manages to take the, like, offhand joke of, like, I can speak, baby, mm. from mm. closing time. Yeah. And somehow turn it into this like beautiful and affecting idea of what that might mean. Mm. And I did cry, but I cry at a lot of weird things. So it might not just be that this baby in particular was very affecting, but I do find it beautiful. And I also kind of see the baby as um, a sort of counterpoint to a shielder because it's like a girl baby. And although the baby isn't like telling stories as such, when it's saying like fire in the water that is kind of it's not a kenning but it's kenning-esque mm. like it, like f- f- fire water could be like a kenning for electric eel mm. kind of thing do you want to explain what a kenning is i will yes a kenning is like a thing in uh anglo-saxon and i think in like old norse poetry where um two different nouns are kind of put together to create a poetic expression of another one so the most common example is like whale road is the sea mm. because it's a road for whales but you can but you can also have like um bone cage for chest or something in a sort of less i don't know but like yeah so fire water could be like a kenning for the electric eels which is sort of placing the baby in a sort of poetic role and then that does kind of make that baby that's as kind of an example of like an a shielder that doesn't get immortal so that is like a girl that would grow up in the same culture and presumably just has a normal life after the episode Hmm. and so a shielder is special but maybe everybody is and the point is kind Hmm. of that everybody in that village is special and important and a shielder recognizes this herself at that time Hmm. but not all of them are kind of given the gift slash ordeal of having to live eternally. Mm. I hope that kind of gave a outline of, of some stuff about this about this episode. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one other thing actually about the, the Vikings, and this really only just came into my head, but um, there's, there's something else going on, I think, with the notion of the after the uh, their all their warriors get beamed aboard the Meyer ship, the doctor points out that they've just been raided. Mm-hmm. There's like there's this, there's a reversal there, but because of that, what you then get is this sense of a kind of a, a kind of cyclical violence, and I think one of the things that's interesting about the the story is where it sits in regard to that, because the doctor starts out just kind of teaching them to fight back. And mm. uh, as in a way that like is uh, apart from the fact that it's going to get them killed is kind of perpetuating that violence, but it ends up being something very different. And uh, what ends up happening is is a way to not only to break that cycle, but also to actually undermine the idea of the Meyer as warriors in the first place with the like the video of them running scared from nothing at all. There's something fun going on there, and I think that's another, another interesting element of the, what it's doing with Vikings. I think 
along with um the kind of the the hyper masculinity and all that kind of stuff it's the storytelling as well because they mm. fight back against mm. the Maya's kind of narrative of being these mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um unstoppable warriors with their own kind of framing of them running scared mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. Benny Hill theme presenting like a sort of counter narrative to to that so I think that is yeah and um it's also also just kind of like different ways in which Vikings sort of inter like lived in Britain specifically mm. where they raided but then settled mm, mm. and so for considering that it doesn't really like pay too much heed to the historical idea of what Vikings are like in reality like like it's not it's not aiming to be historically accurate it does manage to do some interesting stuff with like the historiography of mm. how we think about Vikings mm. for all that it's like not aiming for absolute accuracy itself i think it is kind of cool how it does both of those things yeah yeah that... lofty stealing a baby <laughs> <laughs> that might be my favorite joke in the whole of Cavani's tenure <laughs> it's it's the way he delivers it the guy why is lofty stealing a baby we just go around the house saying that to each other sometimes <laughs> we actually do yeah it's true I just want to say I cry every time the baby. Oh yeah, yeah. The baby speaks. I'm I'm weeping already. <laughs> the other thing we've been going around the house saying is I will sing to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I wanted to say I am afraid, but I will sing is also in a statement of like how stories can be used to placate. Mm, so there's like mm. so many different things going on with stories. Stories for days. Mm, stories all the way down. Oh my god. It was stories all along. A preview of what I'm going to be talking about next episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on, so, to The Woman Who Lived. Sergeant, scientist, inventor, composer, it's a fantastic CV. You should try my journals. I read them myself now and then. Drink pomace wine, have a little me time. You don't seem the nostalgic type. It's not nostalgia. It's curiosity. I can't remember most of it. That's the trouble with an infinite life and a normal-sized memory. Can't have been easy, outliving the people you love. According to my journals, hell. This is the first point in this series, I think, where... I wouldn't say that I have any kind of criticism, but it's the first point where I think there's an episode that, for me, is not fully hitting all its marks. I still think this is a good episode on the whole. Like, it's a, probably above average on the whole. And I think it's got some really good things going for it. I mean, what I really like is just the whole concept, the whole two-hander aspect of it between Peter Capaldi and Maisie Williams is great. It's that thing, that, uh, almost like I was saying about The Witch is Familiar, where Doctor Who kind of thrives on just sticking the Doctor on someone else in a room and just letting them talk. Uh, and I said the Doctor and uh, an antagonist at that point, I think, and me is one of the interesting things about her is the way mm. she straddles that line between is she an ally, is is she an antagonist, based really throughout the series. And I think the the concept of me, of this immortal who has been living through the last 
like 800 or so years again it's i think it's deliberately kind of ambiguous about time frame is um it's enough it's easily enough to sustain an episode on its own which it mostly does here it thrives on those interactions on her taking the doctor to task on his kind of his various rebuttals and criticisms of her and i think it's very deftly done the way that your your sympathies shift constantly really between them uh in the way that like they both have pretty good points actually and the way that it kind of deals with the notion of what was what is it like to be an immortal like what kind of morality do you apply to your life how what do you what do you do with emotion when everyone that you love keeps dying what do you do with attachment and meek has come to the obvious conclusions of detaching herself but there's a sense where she talks about even emotion runs out but we never really believe her even before the end the kind of the reversal at the end we don't believe without the doctor ever actually contradicting her we can't believe her partly because she has assiduously documented every aspect of her life but also it just it feels wrong intuitively and i think that's really quite clever writing and we've got others we've got like the I really like the notion, um, I can't remember which of them says it actually, but the, the line about every single death is a tiny fracture in reality. Which again brings us back to some of the thematic stuff that we're talking about this series. As with the previous episode, it's the notion that an individual death does matter in the grand scheme of things. And the notion that like prioritizing that and even in a couple of cases this series reversing that death even if it is kind of counter to nature, it's something that you can at the very least understand the appeal of because a death rips reality apart as it will for the Doctor later in the series. So obviously I'm saying a lot of positive things here, so I must be leaning up to a but. And the but is that I don't really care for the the rest of the plot of the episode, basically. The Leandro stuff, um, as much as I enjoy uh, the Doctor referring to him as Lenny, uh, Lenny the Lion it never quite gels for me with the rest it feels uh, it does feel a bit like well there's got to be an alien in here somewhere <sighs> so there's a big lion here he is say hello and I mean fair enough I'm always happy to see a big lion reminds me of Warrior's Gate great stuff but um, it feels like where you have this the the emotional content of the episode uh, which as I say is this really interesting stuff with real kind of emotional intelligence behind it and really deft writing this feels like oh but then we have to have the plot stuff and part of the problem I think is the fact that apart from the fact that Leandro himself feels very like as if he's wandered in from a different episode part of the reason it doesn't gel for me is that I, I just plain don't buy Mii's reversal at the end it doesn't feel earned it feels very sudden i don't know if that's if there may have been some stuff cut out at, at script stage which, which might have helped i don't really know so it just feels like there's this plot sort of grafted on and it's not that it's a terrible plot it's kind of fine but it they think the two things just don't marry together which i think is a real shame Especially because, like, this dynamic between the Doctor and me is so interesting. Uh, as it will continue to be throughout the series. 
one particular detail that I like about it is the fact that we can never be, both here and later on actually, we're never really sure how right the Doctor is about me. Uh, or indeed how right she is about him, for that matter. Mm. But like, I think the fact that he he never uses her, her assumed name, I think is really interesting. Because there's some there's actually something a bit queasy about that. There's a there's a there's a denial of her her identity and a an insistence on the identity by which he originally knew her. Which it's never it's not fully explored, which I don't don't mean as a criticism. I mean there's there's so much going on uh, that um it's I think it's perfectly fine to leave that as an interesting and telling detail. But I think it's worth worth bringing up here because the it is something that will continue throughout the series and that I think forms an interesting kind of undertone to all of their interactions. Anyway, that's enough from me for now. Uh, Jacob, what about you? Yeah, I'm not a massive fan of this one, as you kind of probably guessed from what I was saying in the previous episode. I think, I think for me, this is weaker than the previous episode. I think the first part is, is probably the stronger of the two, although they are. You know they are kind of distinctive as well, like in their own right. Mm, mm. I guess, like, yeah, the good the good stuff to start with is th- there's some really interesting ideas going on in relation to the character of me, as you were saying, and there's a that yeah there is like some really interesting kind of emotional stuff that's going on, or at least should be, and I think there's some really. There's some really great pieces of writing in terms of dialogue. Like I was watching it again and I was like, there's some great bits mm. of dialogue that kind of sum up in one line some of those kind of emotional issues. Like there's the bit where Ashilda mm. uh, says, uh, me says, you didn't save me, uh, you didn't save my life, you trapped me inside it. That's mm. a great one. There's another one where the doctor says, I didn't know your heart would rust because I kept it beating or something like that. And like stuff like that is really, really good. Like you know, I think really sharp bits of dialogue. Like there's some good location work. The problem that I have is, again, tonally, I'm not a massive fan of it. I because it, it kind of it shifts between this sort of more tragic stuff, like you know, death and grief and loss that we see that me like goes through when you have those flashbacks. But then it it also has this kind of. You know, it has the stuff about like banter, as the doctor calls it. You know, with Sam Swift mm. the Quick and the the whole thing where he's trying to save himself from the hangman's noose, but you know, by that like telling jokes with each other. I guess you could say maybe the two, those two tones kind of converge at that point. But yeah, it, it, I don't think it really gelled, and I completely agree with the with the assessment of the whole like uh, Lenny the Lion plot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think yeah, I think that doesn't work. I have to say, like, I've watched this a couple of times now, and even the first time I watched it, and still the most recent time, I found myself getting bored in it, which is not a good sign. Uh, I feel like it meanders a lot. I, I hmm. It feels very messy, and I think in part that's because those two plots just don't gel together. I also think a big problem is you're already trying to put a lot in, in the sense that because Mia's lived for so long and you've got to kind of catch up and see the tragedy that has happened in her life I think you've already got a difficulty with that alone never mind then adding in this other other part I mean I would have been all for having this I mean like I'm someone who 
favours the return of like pure historicals. And I would have been all for having this as a historical episode with me in it. Uh, mm. I think that might have been better. But yeah, I, I yeah, I don't really think the mixing of the two works. And I, I think crucially as well, one problem, and this is a difficulty just in general with the character, that scene where it's kind of a flashback of like her children dying and stuff that she's gone through, that should have had a real emotional punch. And I... It didn't hit me as it should have done. And I think part of the reason why is because it's all so compressed into, you know, into that sort of section where the, you know, I was just kind of flashing back. I don't know how you can fix that because I think that is just a problem. That's just a difficulty you're going to have with a character who has lived for this long. Hmm. I think my biggest problem with this episode, though, is the use of historical setting, which is a massive, massive missed opportunity. Like, I don't know what they were thinking. Because essentially what happens is, and this is something that bugs me with lots of historical episodes of Doctor Who, the historical setting is not used in a way that's productive. It's used as a backdrop and a scenery for the action. Now, I saw a dating somewhere of the episode being set in 1651. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, but certainly it's set around that civil war period because the Doctor mentions Cromwell uh, yeah. when he goes. He says a pardon from uh, Cromwell when he tries to save Sam Swift. So you've got this civil war setting, and this is in the middle of a series that is thematically all about the distinction between friend and enemy. It's also about, as I'm going to talk about later on, particularly when we get to Hell Bent, it's about the state of exception, which for people who you know, kind of haven't heard of that. It's Giorgio Agamben's kind of interrogation of sort of like states of emergency. Um, so the idea, you know, is kind of questioning how how can the law have the capacity to suspend the law? How can a sovereign, you know, leader have the capacity to suspend the law? And it troubles binaries because it's the dis- troubling of the distinction between, well, is it inside or outside the law? Because Mm. you're operating within the law, but you're also suspending it. And he talks about that specifically in terms of things like revolutions and civil wars as well. So it seems like there's a massive opportunity here where the setting is fundamentally embedded with the series' central themes. And they do nothing with it at all. It's not there. There's one mention of Cromwell, and that's it. And then the rest of the episode is, oh, there's this lion bloke who I want to go off with but it turns out he's actually evil and that's kind of that's kind of it you know and it just mm. doesn't work for me at all it, it's also infuriating because of course the next episode next two episodes will be all about war and mm. they they really bring that they're kind of the most explicit iteration of that friend enemy thing and it could have led into that really nicely and they didn't do any of it so Again, a bit like the previous episode, there are moments that I really, really like in this. You know, there are aspects that I think work really well. Obviously, at the end, we get the kind of troubling of, uh, is me evil or not? Like, can you consider her to be like an ally or is she an enemy of the Doctor? Again, that sets up other stuff later on really nicely. But I think it's such a rich period of history to be looking at. I've always wanted them to do a proper civil English Civil War episode of Doctor Who, and they haven't. I mean, they kind of look at it in The Awakening, but like, I would really like to see them go back and deal with it properly, because it's just so interesting. 
yeah, so I think there are some good moments, but it's largely a very meandering and messy story with a lot of lost potential. Yeah, yeah, I just don't have, don't really have anything to add to. Oh, one thing I will say actually, um, just briefly about the the Sam Swift, the the scene at the end, um, where he's, he stood on the gallows, and uh, this is a positive thing because I actually really like that. I like that scene for its representation of a public execution because mm. I really like the kind of the weird mixture of like entertainment uh, with him sort of telling jokes. And the kind of the bloodlust of them just being like, just hang him. And then the the weird sort of aura of respect as well, where like the, the bell tolls and they take off their hats. It's kind of, it's, it's a strange kind of, funnily enough, a strange mixture of tones, but one that I think works because, you know, the, that's basically what a public execution was like. Mm-hmm. This These weird kind of aspects. Actually, um, I guess... In some ways, that notion of the 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 condemned man chimes with some of Agamben's stuff about the safe exception as well, the mm-hmm. homo sacer, all that kind of stuff. But that's very by the by, and I don't necessarily imagine that's sort of a deliberate thematic chime with the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and uh, so Beth, and um, yeah, I mean, I don't have anything tremendously different to say from what's already been said. I do kind of, I definitely agree with the idea that they're obviously the reason why this episode exists is to be a kind of check-in with me slash Ashilda so that we can see how the centuries have changed her and set her up for the face of the raven and then etc. So it does kind of feel, I, I definitely agree that some of the plot elements, like the more sort of tacked on alien elements feel very sort of arbitrary i'd forgotten about um the lion and her plot completely what i remembered from this story was um i remembered her being a highwayman and i remembered i remembered obviously that this how how me had changed Hmm. and that i think that kind of speaks volumes as to like which are the strongest parts of the episode Hmm. and which are the ones that perhaps should have been amplified further yeah, I, 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 I was I was kind of kicking myself for not realising uh, until Jacob was just saying about uh, how good a setting the Civil War yeah, yeah. would have been, especially because it's like it comes just before the Zygon two-parter, where the whole point is like, oh, you can't tell who's human and who's mm. Zygon, and in a Civil War you like literally don't know what side your neighbour's going to be on, and there could have been so much. But I guess the trouble with that is that in picking that setting they kind of maybe there was maybe it was it felt like a choice between looking properly at how me is doing having a sci-fi element mm. and doing something interesting with the setting and they mm. felt like they had to and they ended up having to choose two yeah, yeah. and by my money for my money i think they chose wrongly <laughs> but i get that there is a kind of expectation that you have an alien even though both the doctor and me kind of count for that but i think that it is a shame that we didn't get more of her book of her like diary if they were going to do that because mm. i think that actually and this sort of struck me when jacob was saying about how the flashbacks weren't as affecting as perhaps they should have been i think that a lot of that 
kind of sentiment actually comes through in the dialogue mm. much more yeah. with especially because Peter Capaldi and Maisie Williams are both such great performers I think they really kind of make this better than what it might otherwise have been I think if it hadn't been Maisie Williams and it hadn't been Peter Capaldi then it would have been a whole different kind of worms but there is some nice dialogue I think that the thing about her children comes through a lot more strongly in particularly the line where she's like I keep those pages to remind me not to have any more and it's just so like Mm. it's the delivery as well but the line itself it's Mm. very like I think that that tells us more than what the flashback does really yeah Yeah. but i think that also it would have been nicer to see some of that explored some of her past explored a bit more through a kind of dialogue and maybe that was something that needed building out a bit more because she's clearly had a very interesting kind of reminded me a bit of like um a more sort of complicated exploration of immortality than like uh and long lifespan than orlando which i think it's kind of riffing on the virginia wolf novel with the fact that she um me clearly spends some time living as a man as well as a woman i think that's kind of in the background but i think it's more interesting portrayal in the way of it of how that would take a toll because that's kind Mm. of what this is doing that orlando isn't the kind of the implications of immortality and yeah i just kind of wish we'd had more of that really because it's very good i do like how this is kind of as we will get to of this series, a Clara Light episode, Mm. which I find very fun because the Doctor Light episode is obviously like a thing in previous new series. And I don't know if the reasoning was the same, like it might just be that Jenna Coleman had other commitments or or whatever, but I do kind of like how um, in line with Clara kind of taking on elements of the Doctor and them kind of like feeding into each other in various ways... It's just a fun kind of meta thing that it's Clara that gets has the episodes where she's off doing something else. Mm. And I don't... I, I'm prepared to accept the thing of infinite lifespan and normal-sized memory, mostly because it's an interesting idea in terms of how it affects her and how it shows that the Doctor's still seeing her in this state that is not who she is and she's had to change because she's literally forgotten... And she's had to come to terms with that. I don't really buy the thing of like, especially because it's phrased in that, I think you knew which pop science it was specifically, but the like 10,000 hours of something. Oh, the Malcolm Gladwell thing, yeah. I don't really buy that because I think it sounded like a very, yeah, like modern way of putting something in the same Mm. way that people sort of quote those things like, oh, you only actually use 10% of your brain power, Mm. which might even be the same person that comes from, I'm not sure. I don't think it is. But But it felt like out of place in a way that a lot of the dialogue doesn't in Mm. this episode. Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, there's a nice sort of uh, rooting of it in in a sort of vaguely like um, 17th century kind of way where it's still intelligible to us, but you still get that jarring sense of like, this is a historical... But that mm. felt very, like, out of place. And also, I feel like it could have been expressed so easily in a way that, like, made sense with the time period. Like, mm. all she would have had to do instead is say, sort of, well, I've had a lot of time. Mm. And I would have been like, yeah, that's true. She has had a lot of time. She's got good at a lot of things. I respect that. But because it's done in that way, it makes me start thinking, like, 
okay, but would you really like rationalize it like that? And how mm. does she know that's how long it takes? And is this, and it just felt like an attempt to sort of, in the same way that the introduction of, introduction of Leandro seems to be a kind of like, oh, we have to have an alien. It feels a bit like a sort of, oh, we have to have a sort of sciencey thing, mm-hmm. even mm. if it's not actually, not actually that rigorously scientific. Mm. And I, it just made, it just brought me out of it, I think. And it's very strange because I don't actually have an issue with her being like really good at all these different things. It's mm. literally just the way that it's explained to the audience how yeah. it is that she got there, and I'm where I'm like, no, that's bullshit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do. I I think I've kind of got to the end of what I have to say. Quick story check-in. She has her own, like, sort of self-written story that she Mm. edits Mm. and uses to, like, entertain slash shape herself in the present. Me, this is, obviously. Mm. But I think, um, for me, it's kind of a lot of elements, a few elements that could have been interesting with the me stuff slash enjoyable with the kind of bantery bit, which... I think could have worked, but it just all felt a bit kind of... Together it feels a bit too much of like a mixture of converging elements that we don't get to spend enough time on. And I sound like I'm being very harsh on it. I actually think this is a perfectly decent episode. It's just that the standard of the series is so high Mm. that I'm going to end up coming out, seeming like I'm coming down a lot harsher on ones for just being like not as good as the peaks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess she also, I guess, forms a legendary persona for herself as a highwayman. Mm. Uh, what's she called? Like the shadow or something like that? The nightmare. <laughs> nightmare, that's it. Oh, that's it. That's much better. Uh, <laughs> much better <Isn't> <laughs> in being much worse, I think. It's funny because did, did any highwaymen actually have names like that or do they all just called like Dick Turpin? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know enough about Highwaymen. No, to be neither honest. do I. The only ones I know are Dick Turpin and Adamant. So, I suppose Adamant does. That's kind of a different name for himself. Oh, that's it? true. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Highwaymen, by the way, my like theory, my headcanon for this story is that because at the end, the notion uh, of whether or not Sam Swift is actually immortal is left kind of ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I like to imagine he absolutely is immortal in the same way that me is. And he won't age, he like he will fight off any disease and that kind of thing. But a week after the story ends he gets drunk and walks off a cliff. <laughs> that's 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 my 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 ending for Sam Swift's character. Yeah, actually that's good. I'm glad that we've got a solution for it because I don't like the idea of him also being immortal and I don't I know that they're kind of like, Oh well he he might he's probably not, but he might be mm. but I'm kind of like, Oh, I mean he's fine but I don't really fancy me's chances I don't really like like that that future for her of just being stuck with this like yeah. objectively a bit of a dickhead <laughs> yeah. for like all of eternity. That would have massively like changed the tone of uh Hellbent as well at the end. <laughs> well yeah. No, if, if like Me's having this conversation with the Doctor about the hybrid, and suddenly Sam Swift is like, Hey, lads! <laughs> end of the universe! Yeah. Oh, God. I do imagine he would just fall drunkenly out through a door into yeah. that scene as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the, with the legend of Sw- Sam Swift dealt with, I'm, uh, that's, that's me done for this story. I don't know if either of you have anything else you want to add. Just that every time you say me... It, oh, like, no. gives me a little 
<laughs> and gives you a little, or gives her a little. Oh my god. Mm. This is why calling her Shilda was objectively less confusing. Yeah, while I do want to respect her. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so let's move on to the Zygon invasion slash inversion. The Zygons are a peaceful race. Their shape-changing abilities should not be considered a weapon. It's a survival mechanism. They embed themselves in other cultures and live out their lives in their new bodies in peace and harmony. Mainly. Any race is capable of the best and the worst. Every race is peaceful and warlike, good and evil. My race is no exception, and neither is mine. If one Zygon goes rogue, or one human, then the ceasefire will break. So, I think... This is kind of one of the highlights in a series that is mostly highlights, I would say. But it is very... I find this one to be very interesting. I think um, I had seen some of it more recently than watching for the podcast just because this was one of the ones chosen for the sort of lockdown watch-alongs. And I think I wasn't planning to watch or tune in, but then, Kieran, you had it on in the living room and I just got engrossed and ended Mm. up like sat there for the whole thing anyway. Or at least for, like, all of Inversion, I think. I feel like Inversion is actually the... Is the more, sort of, interesting and has all of my favourite, sort of, scenes. However, I think that that's just kind of the sign of it being a good two-parter where you kind of need the first episode to set up uh, all of the stuff that is going to pay off later. I think it's really interesting in the way that it kind of paints a picture of the sort of truth or consequences group uh, amongst the Zygons and without sort of feeling like you're being explained to, it manages to sort of sketch very well the different sort of competing interests, like the fact that there are Zygons who might ideally like to be living in their sort of natural form but don't agree with truth or consequences. There are Zygons that just want to get on with their lives um as looking like humans and there are ones that are happy to kind of be humans in human society and and all kind of shades in between and then there's also the interesting fact of truth or consequences um not wanting to be the first to transform themselves um which i thought was really really like well observed the fact that they're forcing like other non-affiliated zygons to revert to Zygon form mm. against their will. So even despite their name, they don't really want themselves to be responsible for the truth or the consequences for their own well-being. Um, so I think it kind of captures the hypocrisy of, of, of that kind of militant group where they're sort of trying to force on other people what they think is best. I think at the time when I watched this, uh, when it was broadcast... I think I didn't like it that much because I think I thought as a kind of young person interested in politics and wanting to change things, I think I thought that it was criticising me when um, <laughs> when it's like the Doctor kind of confronting Bonnie mm-hmm. because I'm kind of broadly... I think it's good in that it paints the truth or consequences are going about things wrong but have a kind of... There's something sympathetic at the core of their ideology and so I think that I was kind of thinking like well what they want is bad and like I want things to change too so maybe so why are they being mean to me 
but I think that whilst whilst being a sort of cautionary thing against militancy in general, I think that what it it really plays quite differently after kind of the the rise of sort of right wing populist movements and, and other kinds of radicalization, especially when we kind of have there was a point where watching Inversion and like Jenna Coleman obviously goes without saying is incredible in this two parter. Mm. But where as Bonnie she's deciding if she, she she's got the buttons of the Osgood boxes and there was just this moment where she sort of looked at the doctor and all of a sudden she looks so vulnerable and at that moment i was like wait a second how how old is bonnie we don't know mm. and like i not that i think that it would matter how old the character was supposed to be but like it just made me think of like young people who are like vulnerable to these kinds of like radicalization and um being kind of it it just was a really like affecting moment and i think the character of bonnie is very interesting and it's so it's so impressive how jenna colwyn plays both mm. clara and bonnie so differently but like you always would know which one was which and re-watching it knowing that it's not clara or guessing that it's not clara if, when if it was a first viewing for some of the first episode is so interesting because there's like all sorts of little moments where there's something subtly wrong about it. Yeah, I think the Zygons... I, I, I would be interested, actually, at some point to see another sort of look at the at, at the Zygons because I think there is room for that. And that's not to say that I don't think that this is a complete story in itself because I think it is and I think it's a very powerful one. But I feel like maybe in a sort of later series, like maybe like five, ten years down the line, it would be interesting to follow up with the Zygons on Earth where they like have they have they fallen in love with humans like that that's just one example of mm. like things that could conceivably happen to complicate things but I feel like there is something interesting going on in the fact that obviously it's not an ideal solution it is a compromise and the whole kind of thing of this as well as um the anniversary special is kind of making the compromise and the working together into something kind of heroic in itself rather than being seen as a sort of negative or a weakness but sort of recharacterizing that as a strength and a way of averting war before wars even happened with the Osgood box but I feel like um there is something it's not an ideal situation to have to live to have to kind of assimilate into human society just to survive and so I would actually be very interested for some kind of like Doctor Who media to kind of check in with them mm. and explore some of those issues and I mean I think it could be I think it could be done and I think it could be done very well it's the sort of thing I wouldn't want to see bungled though mm. yeah. but um yeah that's just the kind of I guess it's kind of that's kind of a sign of how good this two-parter is though really is that I'm kind of it made me think like it made me think about the the Zygons and what's going on with them and kind of want more whilst also feeling like this story was told very affectingly and very well. Yeah I mean I would echo all of that. I think 
I have a, I sometimes have a problem where and I think I had this after the first time I saw this until I rewatched it, uh, which I think was actually the um, the the watch along that you were talking about mm. would have been the first time I rewatched it. But I have a problem where because I remember this as being like like an overtly political episode in many ways and as having kind of having these kind of statements on um, matters of immigration and of assimilation and this kind of thing. For some reason, that translated in in my head into oh, it's not maybe it's not that great. It's kind of taking a weird stance uh, that I don't necessarily approve of, which is very much not the case. Um, because actually, I I think this is a superb story, and I think a lot of its appeal is it's kind of the nuances that it manages to draw, particularly in its characterization of the uh, the Zygons and particularly the kind of extremist Zygons that like Truth or Consequences gang, but also in the way it characterizes the humans, mm. which I think is really interesting because, again, I was gesturing a little bit towards this earlier, but I think this is in a very interesting dialogue with a lot of other Doctor Who in the way it characterizes units specifically. And again, this is reminding me of, Beth, and what you were saying about uh, Under the Lake Before the Flood. Because this is an episode that really asks us to reassess what we think of unit in a lot of ways. They are painted as at least equal aggressors to the Zygons, to the extremist Zygons, in various respects, and if anything, worse in quite a few ways. And in ways that, like, actually go to the heart of the history of Unit in Doctor Who. There's a couple of specific examples. Um, I mean, I think the episode kind of has a constant eye on the end of the Silurians. And on this this previous notion that I don't think it's ever directly referenced, although it might be. But on this previous time where there was a notion of humanity sharing the Earth with another species... And the Brigadier just blew them up. So we're meant to have that in the background. And that notion of the Brigadier, of the the memory of the Brigadier being vaguely uncomfortable, is summed up again in As I Gone Inversion, when Kate reveals that she, that it's actually her, it's not a Zygon, and that she, like, killed the Zygon that was trying to kill her. And in doing so, so she quotes one of the Brig's beloved lines by saying her solution to the Zygon attacking her was five rounds rapid. The thing is, Five Rounds Rapid comes originally from the demons. And it's fr- it's um, the Brigadier instructing one of his lads to shoot at Bok. Which, as generally happens with unit soldiers shooting at Doctor Who monsters, does nothing. And so it's it's kind of an endearing line because it's, uh, you know, it's this kind of very straightforward, very pragmatic attempted solution to a problem that is clearly beyond him. Kate quotes it in her just shooting something, killing it. And, in, like, it's self-defense, fair enough. But there is still something vaguely uncomfortable about it, and the kind of heroic accompaniment that Murray Gold gives that moment as well. I think there's something deliberately a bit queasy about that. Mm. More pointedly, still, is the fact that the the gas, the gas that Unit have, that will turn Zygons inside out, we're reminded several times this very visceral detail was developed by Harry Sullivan. Do they actually have the gas? Well, he certainly developed it, at the very least. Okay, because like, I wasn't sure if that was like part of the Osgood box Well, thing, the doctor, doctor just... says he took it away from them. 
Yeah, and oh. she she so they, she assu- Kate assumes it's in one of the boxes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, not that I ever doubted that mm. the likes of, you know. Well, no, but that's the thing. Like, it is deliberately sort of trying to remind us of the fact that Harry, the sort of like bumbling naval doctor who wandered around with the the fourth doctor being called an imbecile was still a military man mm. and this would have been his solution to something like this yeah it makes it quite pleasing actually that we're doing this after doing terror of the zygons actually mm. one of the great things about this story is that as well as all of its kind of really interesting thematic material it's also just delivering these really kind of powerful and tense scenes over and over again like i actually think both episodes are stuffed full of these interesting standoffs of one kind or another and the one that stands out in my mind is the the church standoff where you have the 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 soldiers with their like apparently their family members stood there like confronting them and what i think is wonderful about that scene uh, and what i think really makes the the weirdness of it hit home is that certainly for me at least and i'm sure for many people there was no point where I didn't think those were Zygons. There was no point where I thought, oh, maybe these actually are their family members. It's pretty clear that they must be Zygons. But you can understand why the soldiers want... Some part of their brain is saying, maybe this is your mum. You can't shoot your mum. Mm. So it's like, there's something actually kind of... It genuinely gives me the shivers a little bit because it's it's there's such a weird sort of queasiness about i'm using the word queasy a lot in a good way and uh, it's positively queasy and as well as that like uh again with the the use of history uh i really love how this builds on what we already know about zygons particularly from terror of the zygons we have the kind of building on the notion that they have to keep the original person around for a body print and we have that made into this kind of psychic link between Clara and Bonnie, which gets mined in all kinds of like, in all kinds of interesting ways throughout Zygon Inversion. And again, part of the brilliance of the story that it keeps finding new ways to build on that. Almost every other minute there is something new. There's the like the thing that Clara can text without Bonnie realizing because she can control her hand. There's the, the bit where Bonnie is checking her pulse to see a tell of Clara's lying to her. It's endlessly inventive. Again, I think the the fact that the there's a, a pointedness to the way that this two-parter positions humans, us, essentially, as kind of equal aggressors, at least equal aggressors, in fact, if not worse. Uh, it's the humans who broke the ceasefire, for one thing. It's the humans who killed the Zygons in... Um, who started attacking the Zygons in Truth or Consequences. And the Zygons just fought back. And indeed, in Truth or Consequences, the the town I mean, there's this lovely little detail where the the Zygons, the immigrants, are referred to as the Brits. It's this lovely little inversion of um, the way in the UK we think about immigration. It's also combined with the bit at the start of the Zygon inversion where uh, the doctor says to Osgood, like, oh, we've crash landed in the UK. We're gonna, they're going to think we're here to steal their benefits. <laughs> Speaking of Osgood, I think we should talk about her a little bit, actually, because she's great. And 
obviously the story revolves around her. She's kind of the centre of it. In plot terms, obviously, but also kind of the moral centre of it. Uh, which is really nice. Again, it's actually it's a little similar to the way the Doctor uh, continually refers to me as a shielder. The way that he keeps wanting to know which one, which Osgood it is, which one are you. And the fact that she withholds the, the truth from him. Or in a, in a different way, I think a more important way. She's not concealing anything. Because the point is that she is a hybrid. Uh, <laughs> she is both human and Zygon in, a, in, in every way that counts, essentially. Wow, it was like I was there in the cloisters. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the story, because there's, there's a thing that happens throughout Moffat's tenure that I really like, where we, especially in um, Capal- the Capaldi era, again and again we get this notion that Doctor is a title. It's not a name, it's a title, and one that the Doctor has to continually strive to prove that they are worthy of. Which will be important again when we get to Hellbent, mm. actually. Mm. But we'll get to that. And one of the things that particularly Zygon Inversion does, is shows that Osgood is also a title now. In the way that Bonnie becomes part of Osgood. Bonnie is kind of, not subsumed, but elects to live up to that ideal as well. Which I think is a really understated but really powerful place for that character to end up. You know, we're we're so used to the idea of kind of sympathetic revolutionaries ending up getting killed anyway or just carted off to jail or whatever. Whereas Bonnie gets to to carry out at least some of the change she wants to see, but to do so in um, a more peaceful and a more, in every sense, constructive way. Listen to me, listen. I just, I just want you to think. Do you know what thinking is? It's just a fancy word for changing your mind. I will not change my mind. Then you will die, stupid. Alternatively, you could step away from that box. You could walk right out of that door and you could stand your revolution down. No. I'm not stopping this, Doctor. I started it. I will not stop it. You think they'll let me go after what I've done? You're all the same, you screaming kids. You know that? Look at me. I'm unforgivable. Well, here's the unforeseeable. I forgive you. After all you've done. I forgive you. The only other thing I want to say then, for now at least, is, because there's a lot to say about this story, funnily enough, I want to touch briefly on the the Doctor's big fireworky speech, which is like the the aspect of this episode that tends to get talked about most. And I think it's a really interesting scene for a lot of reasons. I'm going to flag at this point, actually. There is a very, very good interview with Peter Harness on the podcast Galactic Yo-Yo, which I've mentioned before, where he talks... He talks a little bit about this, this story and about his tenure on Doctor Who, but he also just talks really interestingly about Doctor Who in general and his kind of point for the podcast, his like his unpopular opinion that he comes with, is that Doctor Who comes originally from a place of consensus, a post-war settlement in which Britain's place in the world and the kind of the, 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 the battle lines, I suppose, seemed to be clear, seemed to be kind of generally culturally accepted in a way that we might not accept was actually the case, because of course there are always counter-narratives, but at least uh, on a wider kind of 
in a sense that you might see on the BBC, at least, that was clearly the case. Whereas now, that's very much not the case. Now we have much more contention over over truth, over um, identity in many ways. And so his, his contention is that Doctor Who needs to alter itself to find a way of speaking to that world. And strangely enough, I think this the Doctor's big speech actually does that in, in some ways. Which is interesting because I think... Some people kind of, I know, have taken it to task a bit. They they find it a bit too, a bit too simplistic in some ways. The notion that to end a cycle of violence, you just have to sit down and talk, and indeed the notion that like the optics, which I agree, to be fair, aren't great of the kind of the older white man telling a room full of women essentially what to do, which I think is mitigated slightly, as Harness says himself, by the Doctor being an alien and being an outsider in that situation. Uh, although he does somewhat agree with that assessment as well. But what I think is interesting about the about that speech is it settles on an ethical position that is basically simple, which I think is something that does rub people up the wrong way, and I a little bit understand that. The simplicity being talk to each other, hash out some kind of compromise, some kind of consensus. But what I what I like about that is there is it has the ring of truth about it because i think strong ethical positions quite often just are simple and a lot of the strongest declarations of morality of ethics are simple the sermon on the mount is simple for instance at its core certainly how you apply it is complex but at its core it is a, a straightforward message about how you treat other people and how you interact with them. There is something about it that really does kind of cut through, for me at least. Other people's mileage may vary, and I think that's perfectly understandable. Oh, one other thing actually about that scene is the fact that this is a cycle, I think, is quite interesting. Because again, that gets emphasised with... Um, the doctor telling Kate, you said that the last 15 times. <laughs> She's been here over and over again. And on, on the one hand, there's something cynical about that in the notion that, oh, well, this won't be the last time. Maybe this this is just going to keep happening. But I, there's also something kind of, there's something almost anti-cynical about it as well. In the notion that this does mean this has happened, 15, well, 16 times, yes. But it also means 16 times nothing has happened. It also might just be the Doctor messing with her. I mean, it might as well. But, like, I mean, to be fair, something like this has definitely happened at least once because it happened in Day of the Doctor. But, yeah, it is this notion that, like, presumably, and if we take the Doctor's word for it, they have come to this point of crisis several times and have stepped away from it again. So there's something in that to suggest, well, maybe that's, that's part of human and Zygon nature as well. To... To contemplate the catastrophe and then step away from it <laughs> so that's a lot but there's a lot in here jacob i feel like you probably have a lot to say as well somehow <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think this is a very it's a very powerful story that deals with uh you know very important issues and issues that were particularly pertinent when it came out and still are I, I do think that 
it is good, but for me, I I think the the second half is better. Um, I mean, there's stuff that I enjoy like right throughout, you know. But I think mm. the second half is better. I think there are, particularly in the first half, there are elements that are strained. Like I found the the way they get to the cliffhanger in episode one to be a bit contrived because you know essentially the the they're going to blow up the doctor's plane and to get him onto the plane he asks if they have the presidential aircraft because he likes poncing about in a big plane which is a very funny line doesn't really make any sense with his character as far as i can see i, I don't know I was just never a fan of the whole like president of the world thing. Mm, However, yeah. I can for this plot, I can kind of see it makes it workable because you would kind of have to be president of the world to sort of affect something like this, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I do think it's really good for me. I think the thing that really raises it, and it's not to say that there isn't good stuff throughout, but the thing that really raises it is the speech at the end um, because P- Capaldi's performance is fantastic. Jenna Coleman's performance is fantastic as well. You know, like, Capaldi is, is brilliant in that moment of kind of... Again, again, those kind of, like, tonal shifts, you know, he goes from being angry and, uh, you know, to, to almost being, like, quite vulnerable and, uh, like, des- you know, desperate, and then, obviously, there's the conclusion at the end. And, like, he just shifts between those moods so well. I mean, it's it's it, you know it's a well written speech as well, but I think his performance mm. really elevates it mm, yeah. and kind of yeah brings the episode to a really a really good conclusion. I think it's worth kind of talking about the context of this episode and why it was kind of very timely because mm. essentially it airs in October, well over October, the end of October and the be- the beginning of November 2015. Second part just a f- like a day before Remembrance Sunday, I think. Um, so obviously that kind of fits with the the episode's critique of war, but what's important as well is that in December of the same year, Parliament votes to extend the bombing campaign uh, against uh, ISIL or ISIS, however you want mm. to say it, uh, from Iraq and into Syria. Now, obviously, the episode aired before this, but it's an ongoing debate while this episode is going on. Actually, interestingly as well, I mean, not only did Cameron lose a vote in Parliament on bombing Syria in 2013, when Ed Miliband famously, one of the few things that I actually agree with him on, opposed it. But interestingly, even though he lost that vote and said he got it, uh, there was a Freedom of Information request in July 2015, and apparently the RAF had been bombing Syria anyway. So, yeah, it was very much like a big issue at the time, and the debate was ongoing, even if the official decision hadn't been made yet. There was also a wider debate, which you've alluded to as part of this, of taking refugees, because obviously we were getting huge numbers mm. of refugees from Syria because of what was happening. And, you know, there was, of course... Not just in the UK and Europe as well, but particularly in the UK, there was, you know, these debates about, well, well, what if we're letting in terrorists and we don't know who we're letting in? And it, it, it went into a wider, really kind of vicious set of anti-immigration sentiment that would dominate that election uh, in 2015, the rise of UKIP, and, and has continued. <laughs> you know, mm. that's why we have the government that we have right now. And, and Cameron stoked that kind of sentiment basically for his own political advantage and even the Labour Party did as well let's uh, you know like to mm. 
I want controls on immigration mugs, which is frankly the most stupid thing I've ever seen. Anyway, I'll stop going about that. So basically, I think what's very powerful about this story is that it's a, a really like potent message and debate about war at a time when there are very real debates happening. And I, I think, as I said about the Daleks in the first story, it's a case of using a returning villain exceptionally well because obviously you have the Zygons who can who can shapeshift. So it brings in all of those concerns about terrorism and uh, you know that were happening at the time and were encouraging a more authoritarian shift in terms of how do you protect against terrorism? How can you tell when someone is a terrorist? And then we had things like the prevent strategy, more and more surveillance and so on. Mm. So there's all of that. But I think what it also does in that scene that you mentioned with the the church, and also the scene just before it with the where they're going to do the the strike, uh, and mm-hmm. then the person doing the strike sees like her family in front of the church. I think that is is really powerful because not only does it get to those issues of of kind of terrorism, it also breaks down the friend enemy stuff again. Um, and what it really says is these are people with real lives. They're not just like numbers on a screen, uh, you know, people that you're, you know, kind of firing at from a distance. They, this has a real impact on them and, it, you know, it will, it will tear them apart and it will tear the country apart. Also, the kind of the, the variegated, like, portrayal of the Zygons, you know, they're not homogenous. They're, like you were saying, they are, there's a spectrum of, of opinion and behaviour is really important as well because that was the big point about Syria and I think this has been borne out by everything that has happened since was like Iraq and Afghanistan you are going into something that is extremely complex that you don't know anything about really and one big argument was this is just going to make it worse because there's so many factions within it and not only that, but bombing Syria was going to help Assad, who is hardly like the mm. person you want to help, you know. So I think it does all of that stuff really, really well. As we were saying in Dialogue with Terror of the Zygons, it gets around the almost like monstering of, of refugees, mm. which was a problem, which is good. I, I think maybe if I had to make one criticism of it, I think I think there's something awkward in, you know, the Zygons kind of, being hidden on the earth because this is something that they raise like i think one of the the kind of grievances at least it's suggested is that they can't live as themselves they're mm. they're living as humans and and mm. the thing is there there's definitely a point to be made about that because it it does play into the kind of like very dodgy rhetoric that was fueling a lot of anti-immigration sentiment at the time which was the idea that people who come into the country aren't properly integrated and they have to they have to mm. speak the language and those talk of you know, having language tests and all sorts of other things mm. uh, and yeah and this idea that like immigration doesn't work because it's cult- cultures that are too different that was the kind of xenophobic argument that tended to run and I, I, I do think I, you could say that one problem with this story is arguably it plays into that by you know kind of having them hidden that way I think it's somewhat offset by the fact that it is, you know, it, I think it is coming from a place of sympathy, really. I think it is trying to break the idea, break down the idea that these people are monsters or these people are excluded and so on. So, yeah, I think I think it mostly 
kind of gets around that. Obviously, again, it's also progressing the kind of the central themes of the season, you know, particularly with the kind of the breakdown of the binary uh, between the two Osgoods and the idea that Osgood won't say mm. whether she's human or Zygon, which is also great because, again, it's that sense of it shouldn't matter where you're from because she said, you know, I will say when no one cares about the answer. And it's the fact everyone should be treated the same regardless of who they are, you know. So I think that that's, yeah, that's powerful as well. And as I'm going to kind of talk about with Hellbent, and as I kind of sort of briefly mentioned with the woman who lived, it does get us towards that state of exception stuff that will come through in. It'll come through in Face of the Raven, actually, as well. Because not only does this kind of go into the idea of you know governments, or alludes to the context of governments uh, extending their power in ways that are problematic, but it is also, again, about inclusion versus exclusion. And you mentioned that line about they think that you're all, you're all going to pinch their benefits. And again, that is something that was very much said at the time and is still being said. There's this question mm. of mm. which which Agamben's, you know, sort of interrogation of the state of exception deals with this idea of who do you include and exclude? Who who has legal rights and who doesn't? And I think I think all of that stuff is is really well done. I think it ties together beautifully with that with that ending with the speech yeah it's it's really good really good story i think i think um osgood is kind of interesting in relation to what you were saying about how like there is kind of a point that they are being that the zygons are being kind of judged on whether they will assimilate or not to a certain extent because i think that osgood as a character does kind of show that there's maybe a possibility of living a sort of authentically Zygon mm. existence whilst also living a human existence mm. because yeah. she is both. But I, I do feel like that's where I would be interested to see kind of um, maybe some of these ideas explored in the future again, mm. because um, it does feel, it does feel like an imperfect compromise in the sense that the Zygons can't show that they are, Zygons, but then I guess that the point of the story and what I find kind of interesting in a way, in a way is that like the solution doesn't have to be perfect, but mm. if it will stop the bloodshed and war, then maybe it's enough for now. So I kind mm. of like how it shows the stages of this kind of working things through. Mm. I like Osgood as a kind of fan character because she is a fan of the Doctor and has been since she was introduced. And I think at first I kind of reacted a bit against her. And I think that was partly because I saw the way that she was a fan, which involves like her sort of like little, not quite cosplays, but her Mm. kind of, I guess, doctor bounding, you might call it, where she like wears elements of the doctor's costume and is very, and I think I saw that and I was like, oh, that's a bit uh, cringy. I'm a fan, but I'm not like that. I'm like a cool fan. (laughs) And I feel like that was such a like, wrong-headed way of looking at things from my point of view because it's I think what I like about her is precisely the fact that she her way of being a fan isn't in this like sort of typical often like sort of male version of fandom which is just obsessively knowing everything about the thing Mm. and getting into really granular detail although she does do that as well but like 
she wants to dress like the thing and she presumably makes her costumes and stuff she's the more kind of creative side and I really like that but I think what's really great about her in this story is we see her as a critical fan because she mm. doesn't like just agree with whatever the doctor's saying she will not tell him like if she's like the human osgood or the zygon one because she doesn't recognize the point of that question and so i really like that there's kind of a model in the show for fans who who love doctor who but who are kind of like how we're doing and like how a lot of fans do it, do don't just like take it I don't just accept what the doctor is doing or what mm. the show is doing mm. and I really like that she kind of embodies that kind of a character I think she's really interesting and I think I just I think I just reacted against her initially because I think I honestly like saw too much of myself in her and I was like but I'm not like that even though like I think I am actually and I think that that's good because Osgood is amazing and also, I think I was saying earlier that, like, I came around to Bonnie because I was, like, because it, I sort of implied that, like, I had realised that I wasn't at all like that and I'm better than that. But I think it's more like I understood the point of what was being got across. And I think that actually maybe what I wasn't wanting to acknowledge at the time was that my kind of take on some issues was a bit too absolute and was very kind of about, like, purity, moral purity. Mm. And in a way that I think was actually unhelpful. And this is like left-wing political ideas, just to clarify. <laughs> but I think that there was a kind, there can be a kind of like puritanical edge to a lot of political discourse. So mm-hmm. I got into some very heated Facebook arguments about people who just didn't, maybe didn't, hadn't read the same stuff that I had about like feminism or like various intersectional issues. And it's like people don't come furnished with an understanding. And I feel like maybe I was seeing that in her and reacting against it when Mm -hmm. actually it was just a part of myself that I hadn't quite worked through and I what I like about Bonnie is the fact that the way that she has dealt with is kind of like a response to these moral absolutes because it's like it's a story about forgiveness and redemption and I'm really into those kinds of stories for all sorts of reasons I just love the bit where the doctor's like she's like you're saying I'm unforgivable well guess what I forgive you Mm. and how that's kind of like she's pushing herself further down that road because she thinks that she can't come back from it but then it's like okay we forgive her how do we show that in our actions and help her and it is by her becoming part of like osgood but it's like how it's 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 so interesting in terms of like breaking this cycle like they don't wipe her memory and just send her back and let things repeat they make her a part of the solution mm. in a way that doesn't like just punish her, mm. which I, I really like. And it's really good at communicating a counterpoint to a kind of politics that's about like, who is the best with the bit, particularly the bit which I really love where in the doctor's speech where it's like, will there be violins? Will people be allowed to play the violins? Who will make the violins? <laughs> where it's like, there's so much to a, to running a society that tends mm. to get simplified just to like, who is best group and how will they be allowed to show that they are best and um i don't mean to come across very like both sidesism in this because i think that i don't mean to say to imply that like feminism is the same thing as anti-feminism or something but i just in this particular thing where we've got a character who is an extremist i think that it's interesting to have those views challenged and be like 
okay, but where are you going? It's not about a hierarchy. It should be about just people living alongside each other. So let me ask you a question about this brave new world of yours. When you've killed all the bad guys, and when it's all perfect and just and fair, when you have finally got it exactly the way you want it, what are you going to do with the people like you? The troublemakers. How are you going to protect your glorious revolution from the next one? We'll win. Oh, will you? Well, maybe, maybe you will win. But nobody wins for long. The wheel just keeps turning. So come on, break the cycle. I was going to make a flippant joke earlier, which I'm glad I didn't do, about being like, well, if my mum had forgotten my cuddly toy, Schningle, I'd know for sure that she wasn't my real mum. But actually, I 100% still wouldn't, like, be convinced of it. I'd still mm. be like, but it looks like mum. And also, I just wouldn't want to shoot anybody anyway, so... Well, yeah. That's why I'm not... That's one of many reasons why I'm not a random unit lad. <laughs> yeah. Some of whom might have been Zygons, incidentally. Like, it's possible that some of the people who were, like, outside of the church were, like, deep cover yeah. Zygons who were, like, couldn't step back, which I find quite interesting because the remains of people, the, like, fuzzy blob things, look the same. Mm. So there'd be no way of knowing. Mm. And I think that's just... There's so much complicated stuff you can do with the Zygons. I love it so much. Mm. I mean, one other point to make before we... Maybe finally move on from this two-parter. No! <laughs> um, is that, for all we've talked about how Osgood uh, kind of embodies the, the notion of a hybrid, so does Bonnie, yeah. increasingly over the course of the story. Not just when she becomes part of Osgood, as you say, mm. but the notion of... Uh, that's the, another thing that the notion of her having that link with Clara is doing is that there's a sense in which Clara is kind of bleeding over into her as well. Mm. Like, you know, for one thing, there is the notion that, like, um, at the end, the, the Doctor says to her, like, I've won advantage, I know that face. And so there's a sense in which her kind of, her being Clara is kind of cluing the Doctor in in some ways. But also, there is this notion that she's almost becoming infected with Clara's kind of, morality uh with her kind of her worldview as it has been honed over the last couple of seasons in particular and there's this interesting notion there there's this kind of because the other thing about the the doctor's speech not to go back to that too much but is that it is ultimately as you say quite rightly it is rooted in forgiveness mm. which is one of the the powerful things about it but it's also rooted in empathy and i think the the ultimate sort of denouement of the episode is rooted in empathy in this idea of being able to see from another person's point of view which is actually a note that was picked up in Day of the Doctor as well with the Doctors making everyone in the room forget whether they were a human or a Zygon so that they had no choice but to empathise but here it's a slightly subtler note because it's Bunny knows perfectly well what she is but what she is, is also a little bit Clara at the moment. And so, as she kind of comes to realise, she can't not have another perspective. 
as a result of that, which I think is an in- a very interesting place to, to end up. Yeah, it's another way in which the episode comes down in a place that is made up of all kinds of complex notions of interrelationship, of hybridity, uh, and indeed of empathy, of forgiveness and redemption, but is ultimately just a very simple and straightforward position. So, I think it is time to move on, and we'll move on to Sleep No More. Mm-hmm. Hello again. The thing is, you see, this message, this testament, it wasn't just my alibi. It was my plan. There are no spores, no infection. The Morpheus process remains the same. An electronic signal that affects the sleep centers of the brain changes them. An electronic signal that's contained in this recording. There it is. Tickles, doesn't it? I've just got time to to fit this bit in and then I can finish the story and then I'm going to transmit this footage to the whole solar system. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. I did try to make it exciting. All those scary bits, all those death-defying scrapes, monsters, and a proper climax with a really big one at the end. Compulsive viewing. I did tell you not to watch. I think it's one of the weaker episodes this season. I mean, as we've said before, this is a very good season. This episode is written by Mark Gatiss. It is. Um, so everyone knows what I'm going to say right now. <laughs> yeah, it's just fine. All right, I guess. I don't know. Okay, well, th- to start with, some of the better things. It does continue on thematically somewhat from the other stuff that we've seen this season, though I don't think as strongly. So, I mean, we have... There's that theme of exhaustion that is in... Well, it's in Heaven Sent, it, but it was previously in Under the Lake Before the Flood. That kind of resurfaces here through the whole, like... Yeah. Uh, you know, this this thing of them using Morpheus to compress their sleep so that they can work for longer. And within that idea as well, I think there is something interesting going on about the nature of capitalism. It's very simplistic reading of it. And the extension of like the working day and things, I mean that doesn't happen in a linear fashion. But yeah, like th- that that's quite interesting. And I think the idea that the uh, the monsters in the story are kind of an accumulation of that, you know, because they're like the mm. they're supposed to be made out of sleep, sleep dust you get in your eye. So it's like uh, the idea that they're an accumulation of that is interesting because it's the idea that that kind of extension of the working day and pushing people till they're exhausted for the sake of profit and productivity is not sustainable you know and 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 will create something something monstrous mm. i think that's interesting it does try to do something different with the form which i commend mm. it for i don't think it pulls it off but it at least it does try and do something different and i think of the monster as well pushes forward some of the central themes that we've seen throughout the season. The, it calls them the Sandmen, don't they? Well, Clara names them the Sandmen, and the Doctor is like, only I name things. And, and he's like, well, I suppose that's fine. But yeah, the Sandmen, there's a kind of collapse between inside and outside because they're made from sleep dust, so like mucus, skin cells, and so on, like excreted during sleep. So there's, yeah, there's some kind of collapse between a binary of inside and outside there. 
on the other hand, it is extremely inelegant in the way that it brings in characters at the beginning of the episode, uh, which again I think is to do with the format. But like, kind of having everyone's name come up one by one is is very, yeah, it's just not the best way to to do it really. <laughs> also, lighting wise, I mean, it could just be the screen that I was watching it on, but I've watched this a couple of times now. The lighting, it's like you can't see what's going on sometimes. And again, I know that's mm. because it's supposed to be like a found footage thing and they're on mm. this station that's kind of, yeah, you know, like being attacked and all the rest of it. I did wonder if also it was because of reuse of sets because it looks to me like they're reusing some of the sets from the underwater base. Oh, possibly. Oh. Like there was one point... A feel, yeah. Yeah, there was one point where I could see like the curved sides... And I was like, that looks mm. really similar. And it was the first time I'd noticed it because the lighting is so low. But I do wonder if that was an aspect of it because it does, it does feel like a budget-saving episode, a lot mm. of it. I think the only, the only last point I would make, I do think it's interesting to have an episode where the Doctor is kind of beaten in some way. And that is, mm. you know, you know like at the end, there's that idea that like this signal that will like turn people into these... Uh, sand creatures is is in the the footage and he hasn't grasped that and i think i think that's that stuff is is an interesting way to go and it's also an interesting way of playing with the two part format that you've seen throughout because mm. it's like you, when things aren't coming to a conclusion or don't seem to be you're like oh well, there's going to be another part and there isn't so i think that's interesting and i mean i won't say too much about this but um you know, because I think it's going to be covered, but like, uh, I think the format as well is interesting from the perspective of what you were talking about, Bethan, about like playing around with stories. Because again, it is mm. the idea mm. of he sequenced it in a particular way and this stuff missing. Yeah. yeah, so it's got interesting ideas, but I don't think it really pulls off what it's trying to do. Um, and I don't think it's the most interesting episode uh, overall. It's just fine. <laughs> with the, the the kind of gravitational finality fine finality <laughs> hmm. yeah so I agree in that I think the, I think I basically agree with Jacob in that I think there are, there are some interesting ideas but that they don't come together for me into a whole that works and is satisfying hmm. as a story I maybe like it slightly more because I would say this is actually a better than fine experience. Yeah. But I think if we compared this to something like Night Terrors, which mm. is the Mark Gatiss episode we looked at most recently, I think. Maybe, yeah. I think that that one works better just because it comes together more as a cohesive whole. Mm. Whereas I think with this one, the ideas are probably more interesting and there's so much stuff that I like about it. But I just feel like the experience of watching it is not as good as how it might sound like from mm. talking about some of the stuff mm. that's in there, I think. Part of the problem is I think that using the found footage and having the sort of baddie as a kind of editor of a story figure, I think is neat. I think it makes sense to try a Doctor Who found footage story mm. like that. It's it's worth it's worth trying it to see what happens, but I don't really like found footage, and I that might be a personal thing. I think it can work. I've seen it work 
in stuff like the Blair Witch Project is the most obvious example and kind of the originator of the genre. But I feel like it is difficult to watch for me because you have to kind of have these camera angles and these like camera movements that look as if they're on people for most of it, of which more in a moment. Mm. And so I find it kind of disorienting to to watch and that just makes the... It just put it's a barrier there for me for the experience of it, which might not be a barrier for everybody, but anyhow. The other thing that I find confusing is that I understand that it's through people's eyes because they slept in the capsules, but I think also there is like CCTV-ish cameras, but I'm not sure if they're supposed to be there or not. But if they aren't there, and it's true that the dust can sort of film from anywhere, then I wish that it could have like found some better angles. Um, mm. So that would be my note for the dust. <laughs> um, is it supposed to be that there are CCTV, or is it all dust? That's it's all know. dust. Okay. Yeah. The doctor says there's no cameras. I mean, my, okay, my well thought... Then... Sorry, go on. No, no. no well, my my thought with that was, I, I agree. Like, yeah, it would have been nice to have other angles. But I, I think they do start to put stuff in later once they've revealed it. And so I think maybe they felt they couldn't because if they did, it might mm. be obvious that, mm. you know, something wasn't quite right. Whether you would have guessed that, that is, though, I feel, yeah. That is true. I, I think they do do a bit more... Mm usual sorts of angles after you know that it's not cctv but i still feel like they don't quite go fully all the way to just filming it normally which i understand Mm. because why would you do a found footage episode if you're then gonna just go to filming it normally but it's just i think it's just the thing of like i said i don't really like watching it that way Mm. I don't know how I feel about the ending to this episode, so I'm kind of interested mm. to hear... It was interesting to hear what you were saying, Jacob. I'm intrigued to, see, to hear what Kieran's going to say. I think it's, like, potential... I think it's potentially interesting, but then it does kind of leave me hanging in a way that's not quite satisfying, and I wonder if maybe some of the other elements of the episode had come together better, I would feel more... Mm. Because I don't mind an ambiguous ending. This is gonna, uh, this is gonna be come re- come relevant in the next episode that we record. But also, just in general, I don't I don't mind things not being tied off with a bow. But I did feel like it there was some resolution lacking. I will forgive a lot because they put the song in. I couldn't mm. remember if the song was in the episode. <laughs> And then in the first like five minutes or something, I was like, oh my gosh, if they don't play the song, I'm going to be so disappointed. <laughs> but then it's like, oh my God, the song is in the episode. Wow. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. There's presumably an alternate universe where they went with Enter Sandman by Metallica. Oh, that would also have been good, especially if it was done in a like little acapella Yeah, style. yeah. The other thing I was going to say is I, I like... I can't remember if she's called 747 or 474. Oh, neither can I, and I have not written it down. Anyway, the grunt. Yeah. Mm. I have mixed feelings about, because, and this is kind of apart from everything else in the episode, I do kind of like that she's this, like, cloned super soldier for, like, to be strong and 
fight good and that she's a girl oh she's a woman sorry I don't want to like patronize her because I think that typically the default with that sort of thing is to have that character just be a man because of people just assume that they would be so I do Mm. like that I always kind of want to know more whenever there's like a character that is a clone a cyborg a robot or some kind of I'm always, I always am like, okay, but tell me more about that one. (laughs) And so that's partly just that I want something specific from those kinds of stories, which is more knowledge. But I feel weird about the fact that, like, she specifically has, is, like, made for low intelligence. Because I, I don't know, I feel a bit uneasy about it. But then there is also the fact that, obviously, this this is presented to us as a narrative that has been edited and scenes have been selected by a particular person. So there is that kind of in-story justification for like what is shown and what isn't. But then I still feel like it just would have helped me to get a bit of a handle on like the characters of the of the sort of soldiers. Although I do think that they are quite well drawn. I actually think that they're, they're well differentiated. These and the kind of base people in uh, under the lake do a quite good job of not just being a very generic crew there's interesting stuff going on I like this kind of um mixture of um I think they say Japan and India get joined Indo-Japanese Indo-Japanese yeah. I like that as a kind of idea and a way to create a sort of interesting fusion setting but also mm. I like that they reflected that in the casting so mm. we have like a quite diverse cast uh who have like interesting personalities i like chopra's kind of thing where he's very awake alert to the fact that like morpheus is exploitative and wants people to put in longer hours but clearly has a blind spot where it comes to seeing force the grunt as a fully rounded person in her own right Hmm. um so i kind of like that because i think that that felt real in that people can have these weird like points where they don't see the like blind spots in terms of recognizing Mm. what's going on societally Mm. but yeah i guess the thing is it's difficult to to come up with like a a take other than that it's kind of it felt messy overall but i really like some of the stuff the ingredients that are there that being said this is another one where I think this would definitely, in the fine traditions, would definitely rank to, like, middling if it was in some of the other series as we've discussed. But it's going to suffer from the fact that it's below the sort of standard that mm-hmm. I... that you get elsewhere. But I think the unacknowledged truth about Mark Gatiss as a writer is that while he gets sort of defaulted to historicals a lot because he has a very like easy knack for sort of creating a sense of particularly Victorian but also just general historical places and time periods I think he's much better when he does present or future settings I think that he's kind of it's clearly clearly something that he has interesting ideas about and um I kind of wish that he had got to do more of really because I think that the the ones that we've looked at that haven't been his sort of historical default kind of thing have been really interesting mm. um, or at least like 
more interesting. Mm. Yeah, so I think that's kind of what I have to say about Sleep No More. Mm-hmm. I do also just like how the episode title and the episode as a whole is just a great way to get Peter Capaldi to do a do some Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm such a big fan of that. Aww. It would be nice if he hadn't decided to quote a big chunk of Macbeth just to make sure you get the... Well, he didn't decide. To make sure you get the resonance. But, anyway. but it was like I was watching Macbeth. Sort of. <laughs> so, I... I would say in the the grand Gatiss tradition, on the Gatiss scale, this is simultaneously, I would say, better than and worse than fine. <laughs> the, um, Does that mean it levels yeah. out to fine? <laughs> I would say it levels out to slightly better than fine, actually. Um, but in terms of... I'll actually start with the worse, because I think the better than is more interesting and will take me longer to talk about. In terms of being worse than fine it is messy as all hell <laughs> i think it's it's oddly structured and uh, its plot revelations kind of come with very little warning in a lot of cases like the the thing about oh there's no there's no cameras here is a nice twist on the on the genre on the um the format but it's not it doesn't actually have all that much impact there's a better, actually weirdly a better version of it that doesn't land quite as well earlier on when, I've forgotten her name, but the leader of the expe- expedition, she, um, the doctor says something about like he's hacked into their helmet uh, their helmet cameras and she says, we don't have helmet cameras. And actually I quite like that line because it's not made a big deal of and it's just kind of left to stew for about 10 or 15 minutes until the revelation comes, but... The episode feels like it's constructed in that slightly off-kilter way, which in some ways goes with the format because fan footage films tend to be very kind of mumblecore in the way they're they're constructed and um, kind of off-kilter and quite kind of naturalistic. This obviously is not naturalistic in just about any way, which I, is not a criticism at all, but it does mean that it sits kind of oddly, I suppose. There are plenty of good things about it, though. I also like the kind of the cultural fusion that's going on. I think there is some nice world building in general. The thing that you were alluding to, Jacob, of the 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 notion that this is a society that is uh, like a capitalistic society that has come to prize productivity so much that it's trying to eliminate sleep. Uh, I think it's a nice it's a it's a nice moment. It's a nice well not a moment. It's a nice theme. It's a nice kind of um, it's very suggestive in a lot of ways. And I think it's got a lot of that kind of suggestive world building where it it tells you a lot about what's outside of this station without needing to depict it. Uh, it reminded me, partly just because I was reading it at the time, mm. but it reminded me quite a bit of um, Cloud Atlas. Specifically the, I think it's the fifth narrative mm. in Cloud Atlas of, uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, you should, first of all, but it's, <laughs> uh, it centres on a um, uh, a clone in a kind of, ultra-capitalistic corpocracy, as mm. it's described, who becomes self-aware and kind of comes to realise her very banded existence. And it reminded me of that both in the world building and in terms of the... I think it is 474, but I'm not totally sure of that. In ter- that character. Please do, yeah. That character, essentially. The other thing is, and I think... Uh, Jacob, you've actually both of you have alluded to this. The, the notion of the kind of... 
the constructed narrative, I think is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think actually sits very well with the the notion, the, the, the central concept of sleep and of implicitly at least dreams. Mm. If you think of dreams as a kind of a kind of unfiltered creativity, essentially, it is four seven four. Thank you. And the leader is Nagata. Nagata, great, thank you. So, yeah, if you think of dreams as a kind of unfiltered creativity, like in a psychoanalytic sense, it's like the the pure sort of pouring forth of the unconscious, which is also generally considered like the the source of creativity. By eliminating that, what ha- what what happens then is the the repressed, as you were saying, Jacob, the the was repressed then bursts forth and kind of asserts itself in the shape of these sandmen, which is a very interesting name for them. Not not just because of the song, but also because it, in conjunction with the machines being called Morpheus, it points to Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which is like a very very influential text on a lot of not least doctor who writers of kind of engages his generation so i kind of assume he has read it to be honest as well as possibly cloud atlas uh, although i can't be sure but what's in what interests me about that is bearing in mind that um rasmussen who is like controlling and shaping this narrative is ultimately revealed to be um uh, one of the sandmen throughout Sandman, the character of Morpheus, who is like the the Lord of Dreams. And some characters actually refer to him as Shaper, as Lord Shaper. He is this con- continually referred to as this individual who has this link with human creativity and has this ability to, his whole role is to shape the raw stuff of creativity into form. And so in a sense, that's what and this, we'll call him Rasmussen because we kind of have to, even though it's not actually him, this individual is doing. And in that way is kind of taking hold of this repressed creativity and attempting to turn it back against the, in a very literal form, turn it back against the society that is attempting to to eliminate it. So I think that's really interesting. Unfortunately, it requires me to do a lot of that associative work to kind of get to it. Which I think is a weakness. And I do think it's unfortunate that the ending... I quite like the ending in itself. I like the, the just the general creepiness of it. Particularly the image of Reese Shearsmith with half a face <laughs> is, is quite pleasing. But I think that part of the problem is... I believe Gatiss was originally tapped to do a sequel to this. For what became Series 10. But... Uh, ultimately didn't i'm not totally sure why i would need to check it up but and it's unfortunate because i think while the kind of the unresolved ending is quite tantalizing in itself and it has this kind of this weird sort of like almost pseudo revolutionary charge which to be honest probably would have been sort of mitigated by getting a sequel because as it is it stands as this kind of just this raw potential i suppose it does mean that this feels like a story that is laying out some kind of almost like a lot of the part, as you were kind of saying, Jacob, a lot of the part ones that we've seen. It's almost building up the structure of a wider story. And then we just don't get that wider story, which I think is a shame because I think there's there's a lot of potential here. 
But because this story is so messy, and because it's kind of trying to pile quite a few different things on top of each other, which I think could potentially work together, like I think the the ethos of productivity and the repression of creativity are two things that do, or at least definitely could work together in a really interesting way. But the story just doesn't quite get there. It builds up these two things and builds up the kind of the bridge spanning them, if you like. Mm. But then doesn't really go anywhere with that, which I think is a real shame. Mm. The only thing I can think to add to what you were saying was, I think, you know, you're saying about repression and stuff. And I think that's interesting as well, because I guess the Sandman, you could say, not only refer to the Neil Gaiman story, which I haven't read, I'd say, but... um, I guess they could also refer to like Freud's Uncanny because he uses right, the Sandman yes, yes, story yes. as an example and they're blind. Of course, and yeah. Blindness is something that he sees as uncanny. So I guess there's that as well. But again, it's like associative work that we're kind of having to do ourselves. Yeah, yeah I think that is an interesting resonance and like Gatiss being actually quite adept at this kind of horror tinged work mm. uh, is almost certainly gesturing towards in some way. But again, it's not really productive. It's not really going anywhere. Yeah. And maybe it would have, uh, or could have, with a sequel. But we don't know. <sighs> okay. So, and that's it for part two. So you can join us next time to face the raven, <gasps> get heaven sent, and then be hell bent. Sure. And then um, I suspect we will be doing a lot of this off the back of Hellbent anyway, but we can talk more about the season as a whole as well, as well as ranking the episodes, uh, which is going to be an interesting thing in itself. Between now and then, uh, you can find us on Twitter, at LotsPlanetsPod. You can also find our individual Twitters there. You can email us at LotsOfPlanetsPod at gmail.com. Also, uh, please do rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify soundcloud basically anywhere you find your podcasts if you've photographed any crinoids like send the pics to me (laughs) (laughs) so uh, until next time i've been kieran i've been bethan i've been jacob